Christian greetings, dear people. In the name of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And I ask you this morning, do you believe this? You see, believing that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and He is the life, believing the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation. I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a text this morning. This is one of the resurrection passages in the Bible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is still on my mind. And in fact, I hope it's still on yours. I hope it's in your heart. It is foundational to every part of life, to everything you do as a believer. And I want us to ponder this question. As we look at this passage this morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. The resurrection, vain or valid? Vain or valid? Not only are we thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then the subsequent resurrection of all believers. Is it vain or is it valid? And I believe most of us, and I trust all of us this morning would say, well, it's valid. But the Apostle Paul was relating to a group of people who were not all completely unified on this matter. And he goes into a discourse here persuading them of the truth. Let us begin by reading verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of all the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, 
but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, it is nearly impossible to read through the accounts of the early church without noticing the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is all through the accounts of the early church. For example, in Acts, we find reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ at least 25 times. For example, God raised those words. God raised, we find 12 different times in the book of Acts. Now, we do not find them in all 12 times right side by side. But if you would diagram the sentence like we used to do back in school, you would find God to be the noun and raised to be the verb in those sentences. God raised. We find it 12 different times in the book of Acts. Speaking specifically of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also find the word resurrection as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ 10 different times in the book of Acts. We find words like rose, rise, risen, at least one time each. In fact, when you read the sermons in Acts chapter 2 through 7, you read those sermons and you will find that they centered not on the suffering of Jesus Christ, not on the cross experience, not on His death, but those sermons centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was a mark of the early church. Faith, certainty that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, why do we find this so much in the early church? Why? You see, the Jews of the day, they believed that Jesus died. Generally speaking, the Jews believed that Jesus died but they did not believe that Jesus was alive. You can read there in Matthew chapter 28, after we read the account of the resurrection in the, in the first few verses, we read that some of the soldiers that had been guarding the tomb, some of those soldiers, they went back to the chief priests and they told what had happened. And then the chief priests had a little council with the elders and they said I mean, what should we do about this what should we do about this what they decided to do is they decided to pay these soldiers a large sum of money and they told them to lie about what happened I found this interesting because just very recently in our national news we had a big splash about hush payments that were made, supposedly by a seemingly religious person, right? And those payments were about being quiet. I will pay you this much if you don't tell the truth. That's really what happened here. Hush payments were being made by supposedly religious people. We will pay you a large sum of money to lie. And they said, we want you to spread the word that Jesus' disciples came during the night while you were sleeping 
and stole the body away. How foolish. How foolish. Can you imagine being one of those soldiers that had to go around saying how you dropped the ball on that big experience? And so Matthew goes on to record that that is the word that is being spread around town to this day, or to the day that he was writing at least. And so many of the references in the book of Acts were in defense of Jesus' resurrection. I say the Jews, generally speaking, believed he died, but they did not believe he was alive. And so these references were in defense, proving that not only did Jesus die, not only was he buried, but more than all, that he rose again and that he was alive. It was in defense of that. Now, not only were the Jews skeptical, but the Greeks were too. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. In this passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're right in the middle of Greek culture and philosophy. And it may surprise you, although I clued you in early on in the message, it may surprise you that not even the Corinth Christian Fellowship was immune to this skeptical attitude. What does verse 12 say? Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Isn't that surprising? That there was actually those in the church that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, it is my understanding that many Greek philosophers considered the human body to be a bit of a prison. And they welcomed death as a deliverance from that bondage. They had a very warped understanding, a very warped perspective of end-of-life matters. The Greeks in general did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. I want you just to briefly notice the response in Acts chapter 17. Hold your finger here in 1 Corinthians 15. But in Acts 17, here we have the Apostle Paul. He's speaking to the Greeks there in Athens. We have his discourse there on Mars Hill. And at the end of that, notice verses 31 and 32. This is how the Apostle Paul ends this little message there on Mars Hill. He said, because he, or God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. In other words, God has given proof that this is the man that will judge the world. What is the proof? He raised him from the dead. How could, a, how could a dead man judge the world? And so he proved that this is the one. Jesus Christ is the one who one day will judge the whole world. He proved it by rising him from the grave. What was the response? Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, or they... They sneered. They laughed. <laughs> but others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And so that gives you sort of a, a, a real, little snapshot of, of the perspective of the Greeks when it comes to the resurrection of the dead. 
This is something they laughed about. They didn't believe it. Although it interests some. I would like to hear some more about this, but a lot of them laughed. And so this skeptical attitude had somehow invaded the church there at Corinth. And the Apostle Paul, being the Apostle Paul, he didn't beat around the bush, but, but he faced it head on. And this is what we find this morning. And so in this passage, Paul gives a convincing defense for the resurrection of the dead, proving, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then flowing out of that, the subsequent resurrection of all believers. And, and the order is vitally important. First of all, he is going to prove that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And then I say, flowing out of that certainty is a certainty that all believers will also one day rise. It's about having first things first. And here is one of those. Now, in the first 11 verses, we want us to note uh, three proofs of Christ's resurrection. Three proofs of Christ's resurrection. And S is the letter that we're focusing on this morning. So first of all, we'll see it in salvation. Secondly, in the scriptures. Thirdly, in the word seen. Okay, so first of all, in salvation, this has to do with their own salvation. Their own salvation is proof that Christ raised from the dead. Secondly, in the Scriptures, what Scriptures are we talking about? Well, they didn't have the New Testament Scriptures. In fact, not all the Gospel accounts were even written yet. The Scriptures they had was the Old Testament Scriptures. But yet, the Apostle Paul says the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is proven from the Old Testament Scriptures. And then thirdly, we have the word seen. We find that word at least five times in these verses. We're talking about eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ after he was raised from the dead. And then following that, we're going to go on into the latter uh, few verses, verses 12 through 22, and we're going to see how the Apostle Paul debunks the Greeks' false philosophy that there is no resurrection of the dead, and he does this by exposing the silliness of their supposition. Now that's wordy, but we'll get to it in a few minutes, okay? All right, let's look here in the first 11 verses. Three proofs. And the first is their own salvation was proof of Christ's resurrection. It proved the, val the validity of Christ's resurrection. Now, sometime earlier, the Apostle Paul had come to Corinth and he had preached the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They had believed it and then their faith in the gospel message had transformed their lives. The gospel was preached, it was believed, and it led to a transformation of life. Now, let me just say that Perhaps the church at Corinth was one of the Apostle Paul's greatest success stories. And this is why I say that. Consider the scene in Corinth, and I quote, Corinth was a polluted city filled with every kind of vice and worldly pleasure. 
Sexual immorality of all kinds was rampant. About the lowest accusation you could make against a man in that day would be to call him a Corinthian. People would know who you were talking about. Corinth was also a proud philosophical city with many itinerant uh, teachers promoting their speculations. And I say, the church at Corinth may have been one of the Apostle Paul's greatest success stories. And yet, dear people, it wasn't through the power of the Apostle Paul that this church was established. Not at all. It was through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what made the difference. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, where? For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel. The gospel is the power of God that leads to salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't matter if you're a skeptical Jew or a skeptical Greek. If you believe in the gospel, you are saved. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. The character of God, the holiness of God, the will of God is revealed in the gospel. What is the gospel anyway? You know, we use that term a lot. We talk about the gospel, but what is the gospel? I mean, if it is so foundational, what is it? We ought to know, right? Well, the Apostle Paul gives a, a little snapshot, or we see the gospel in a nutshell, as it were, here in verses 3 and 4. Briefly, the gospel is that Christ died, Christ was buried, and that Christ rose again. That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. There we have it in verses 3 and 4. You see, an integral part of the gospel is the fact of Christ's resurrection. You know, I, I ask you, do you believe it is possible to be saved without believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Do you think it is possible to experience salvation based only on your belief that Jesus died and was buried? I find this astounding, but I have a friend that I know through our bakery business that I've been relating to here recently. His name is Brian. And, and I know that Brian, he believes he will be saved. He has... He has some very interesting and far out beliefs about religion, but he believes that he'll be saved. He believes that Jesus died. And I knew that, but I wasn't sure what he believed about the resurrection. So here a couple weeks ago, as we were looking towards Easter, I asked Brian, I said, Brian, I'm interested to know what you believe about the resurrection. Do you celebrate Easter? What is your thoughts? He said, oh, oh, he, he said, I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He, he said, in fact, what actually happened is that Jesus' disciples came and stole his body off the cross. I said, Brian, 
Off the cross? Yeah, he said off the cross. And in fact, he is buried today next to a Muslim. Their graves are in India. I said, Brian, that's not what the Bible says. He says, well, I used to believe the Bible too, but he said in 1996, I started reading stories on the internet. Ah. And yet Brian believes that he will be saved. He believes that the way he lives his life and what he thinks is pleasing to God. I say, is that possible? The Apostle Paul says, no, <laughs> it's not possible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is integral to salvation, believing it. Romans chapter 10, that if thou, wilt, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Thou shalt be saved. You see, what good is a dead Savior? <laughs> a dead Savior can't save anybody. But we believe through the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only was he, that he died and he was buried, proving that death could truly be death, but that he rose again the third day. Now, Paul goes on to say, he said, I preached unto you. In fact, he says that twice. Verse 1, he says, I preached unto you this gospel. Verse 2, he says, I preached unto you this gospel. Verse 3, he says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Or that, that phrase, first of all, means that it is of greatest importance. The gospel message that I preached unto you is of greatest importance. The greatest priority in your life must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he said, I delivered to you. But the power and the effectiveness of this gospel message was not so much in Paul's preaching. It was not so much in, in how he delivered it, his good delivery of that message. But that gospel was powerful and that gospel was effective. Why? Because of what it was, and where it came from. That's what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ powerful and effective. And so in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about his story, how he came to Jesus Christ, how he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And then he goes on to say, this gospel which I am preaching, he says, I did not learn it. From someone else. I did not hear it from someone else, but I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. You see. And so, why can we believe in this gospel message? Well, this message that the Apostle Paul was preaching, preaching, delivering, was not something that he just concocted, it was not a story that he came up with, but he's saying, This is real. Because it came from God to me. It was revealed to me by Jesus Christ. And so, dear people, the gospel message is the truth of God found in the word of God. And when you believe it with all your heart, it will change your life. It will transform your life from the inside out. And we see that's what had happened in the Corinthians. They had heard the message they had believed the message and their faith in the gospel message transformed their lives. The fact 
that they were now standing firm on that is proof, dear people, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is valid. That it is real. That it is certain. Well, let's move on. Another proof is the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures prove the validity of Christ's resurrection. Now, we find it twice. Once in verse 3. Once in verse 4. This phrase. According to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says that Christ died and was buried according to the Scriptures and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, I think we look at verse 3 and we say, yeah, we get that. Because we are more familiar with the Old Testament passages, the Old Testament prophecies that point to Christ dying for our sins. We are more familiar with them. In fact, much of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we get that. We can connect those dots. We've read that. We've been taught that. And so we can read passages like Psalm 22, known as the Psalm of the Cross. And although we do believe that that it was the story of what David was going through at a time in his life, yet it does point towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ with amazing detail, amazing clarity. It it just almost blows your mind the details that are there. The prophecy of Christ's suffering and His death. We could also read Isaiah 53 where we have more prophecy. Once again, the details are amazing as they are so similar to actually what took place as Christ suffered and died for us. And so we're more familiar with those passages. But where in the Old Testament do we find reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Children, look up for just a moment. Where in the Old Testament do we find reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I want you to tell me the man's name. There was a man that we read about in the Old Testament who one moment he was riding on a boat and the next moment he was riding in a fish. Who was that? It was Jonah. You're exactly right. Jonah found himself in the belly of a whale. Did you know that Jesus pointed back to that story and compared it to what was going to happen to him? He did. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, right prior to that, the Jews wanted a sign. Give us another sign. And Jesus said, I will give give you no signs except the sign of of Jonas. And then he said, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There you go. And so we can look back to the Old Testament and look at the story of Jonah, and that was a glimmer. (laughs) There was a glimmer of the gospel 
that is found there in the story of Jonah. Three days and three nights. Three days. Okay? Now, we could also think of Job. Now, Job was way ahead of his time when he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth and shall stand again at the latter day. I say Job was way ahead of his time. Job was looking to a day when there would be a living Redeemer. Someone who is living. Someone who is alive. Someone who is in control. Ruling and reigning in that latter day. He said, it's my Redeemer. Now, turn to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And the latter part of this passage, we find the story of the disciples, the two men on the road to Emmaus. And you know the story where they're walking back to their home after the great events there in Jerusalem of Jesus' crucifixion and, and all that surrounded that. And, and these men are very sad. They're very downcast. Very sober. They're probably grieving. And, and you can feel their pain when they, when they say, but we had thought we had thought that He was the one to come to save Israel. And you can almost get choked up with them. You, you feel how, how let down they are. And so, you know how Jesus sort of played dumb. What things are you talking about? You don't know the things? No, what, what are you talking about? And they went in to telling Him the story. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> They're telling Jesus the story of what happened. Wow. Anyway, verse 25. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he says, all the prophets have spoken, and you are a fool. You are slow of heart to believe what they have said. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them. Oh, wow. Wouldn't you have loved to be a part of that Bible study. Jesus Christ Himself expounding unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Blows my mind. Okay. So then the story goes on. They invited Him to stay. He stayed with them. They sat down. And when He prayed and broke the bread, their eyes were open. We know that man. Just like that, He was gone. So, anyway, they were so excited that they ran the whole way back to Jerusalem, which was not a short journey. Ran back to Jerusalem, caught up with the disciples. There were the disciples, gathered together. And they said, it's true! It's true! The Lord is risen! We've seen Him! Anyway, while they were talking, Jesus appeared again. Jesus appeared again. And that's the context of this. Now, let's go down to verse 44. And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So he expounded to them the Scriptures. He opened their understanding. He said, 
This is why it had to happen. This is why Jesus Christ had to die. This is why Jesus Christ had to suffer. This is why Jesus Christ had to rise from the dead because the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied it. It had to happen. Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have the Apostle Peter preaching a powerful message here on the day of Pentecost. And the Apostle Peter is going to certify that not only did Jesus Christ die, but that He rose from the grave, and He's going to say that this was proven by the Old Testament Scriptures, and He points to the exact passage where it happened. But here in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. There's one of them. God raised. Having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now here we go. Old Testament prophecy. For David speaketh concerning him. Concerning who? Not himself. This him is referring to Jesus. David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore, by the way, this is Psalm 16. You can look it up. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Verse 26. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. And so he's saying here, Peter is saying, look, let me assure you that David is not speaking about himself. You know why? Because we know that David died. We know where his tomb is. You want to go? Let's go right now. <laughs> they could have walked. Okay, we all know where David's tomb is. We know where his body is buried. He's not speaking of himself. He's speaking of one who is not dead, but is alive. Verse 30, Therefore being a prophet, that is David, speaking of David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, David, seeing this before, or he saw what was ahead, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul, Christ's soul, was not left in hell, neither his flesh, Christ's flesh, did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. I mean, how can I make it any clearer? The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter was preaching here and saying, here it is, here it is. Now, we don't have time to turn to it, but in Acts chapter 13, we find Paul preaching, and Paul echoes the same sentiment. It's the same certainty that David was prophesying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he goes to the same passage, Psalm 16, verse 11. He goes to the same passage. 
I say the Old Testament scriptures prove the validity of Christ's resurrection. Thirdly, then, from verses 1 through 11, back here in, in 1 Corinthians 15, many eyewitnesses prove the validity of Christ's resurrection. Seen. I mentioned that in these, in these verses we find the word seen five different times. Seen, seen, he was seen, he was seen, he was seen. You've heard it said before, seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. Well, in fact, Thomas, isn't that what Thomas said? He said, I will not believe unless I see, unless I feel. And then Jesus went on to say, well, blessed are those who, who have not seen and yet believe. But seeing is believing. And in a courtroom setting, there are few things as convincing as eyewitness accounts. The court is looking for eyewitness accounts. Were you there? Did you see it? And so they'll bring people in and they will under oath say, I was there. I saw it. That's strong. That's very strong. I saw it with my own two eyes. What's even stronger is when you have multiple eyewitnesses that agree, that all say the same thing. Their stories match. That's what we have right here in 1 Corinthians 15. We have numerous eyewitnesses accounts that all agree. And so we have Cephas, which is the Greek for uh, stone, referring to Peter. I'm talking about Simon Peter here. And then we have the twelve, which at this point, or at that point, was only eleven, because Judah was, Judas was no longer. However, that group was referred to as the twelve. We then have over 500 brethren. Now, that's... That's a lot. That's a lot of eyewitnesses. But there's two things that make that even stronger. And the one is, they all saw at the same time. Over 500 brethren saw Jesus at the same time. But it goes on. Number two says that many of them are still alive. In fact, you could go ask him. And so the Apostle Paul is saying over 500 brethren saw Jesus at the same time and many of them are still alive. If you want to go ask them, you can ask them. They will prove their stories match. And then we have James listed, the brother of Jesus. And then we have all the apostles. And then we have Paul himself. Notice in verse 8 he says, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one as of one born out of due time. That phrase, out of due time, also refers to a miscarriage or an abortion. It has to do with being exceedingly unworthy. And he says, here, last of all, he was seen of me. I am not worthy. I, I am not worthy to have seen Jesus Christ. And yet you know that Saul on the road to Damascus had that personal encounter with Jesus Christ where they spoke to one another. And the others that were along, although they did not see him, they heard him. The others heard the conversation. That's proof as well. 
He says, for I am the least. So he's the last and he's the least of the apostles that I'm not meet to be. And, and I can imagine as he's writing this to the church, he's getting a lump in his throat. Maybe tears are starting to roll down his cheeks as he as he considers how unworthy he is. Who is he to have experienced Jesus Christ? Why? He is not worthy because he says, I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Could we not all say that this morning? By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am not worthy to have seen Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, if you have experienced salvation, then in a very real sense, you have seen the Lord. You have seen the Lord. You experience the work of the Lord in your life. You experience the risen Savior in your life. That should make you bow the knee because you are not worthy. I am not worthy to have seen and experienced Jesus Christ. We could look at other passages we won't for sake of time. Other passages, I'll just refer to them in Acts. Passages that prove the validity of Christ's resurrection. Speaking of those who saw him, in Acts chapter 10, we read that God raised him up the third day and showed him openly. And then the Apostle Peter goes on to preach in that passage that there were those of us who ate and drank with him. Okay, so this is no joke. This is a real person. This is a real body. We watched him eat. We watched him drink. The Lord showed Jesus openly. Acts chapter 13, God raised him from the dead, the Apostle Paul preaching, and it says, he was seen many days thereafter. And he was seen many days. We could look longer at various individuals in this list who were eyewitnesses. We could look at the first on the list and the last on the list. Once again, we won't dig into that for sake of time, but just briefly, we remember Peter. Well, let's say it this way. When we think of Peter, we think of forgiveness. We think of forgiveness. You know, in fact, forgiveness was a theme that we find not only at the cross, but we find it at the resurrection. There on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then you remember Peter. And you remember his good intentions. You remember his bold promises. You remember he said, I will never deny you, Jesus. I will go with you to the death. And yet we all know what he did in the heat of the moment. How he denied him three times. And can you picture the face of Jesus as he lovingly turned back and their eyes met? Can you hear the crow of the rooster? And then Jesus vanishes. And there is Peter. And he's crushed. He's crushed beyond words. That's how things... Can you imagine that separation? The Bible says that he went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. 
And so we have this, this broken man, Peter, who now Jesus is dead. He has sinned so grievously against his best friend, and now Jesus is dead. And yet, and yet, when Jesus rose from the grave and the women went to the tomb, the angel said, I want you to go and tell his disciples, and I want you to tell Peter. The angel singles out Peter of all the disciples. Tell the disciples and tell Peter that I am risen from the dead and this is where you can find me. Let's meet at this location. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the hope that all of a sudden just rose up when Peter heard that he's not dead, he's alive. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And so that old classic gospel song written by Don Francisco that tells the story about Peter's life and his denial and his running from Jesus and not being there when he should have been there and, and all the anguish and guilt and all of that. It ends with a resounding chorus of, He is alive and I am forgiven. Heaven's gates are open wide. You see? There is forgiveness. The resurrection means forgiveness. And Peter experienced that in a very real way. For the Apostle Paul, we think of grace. The Apostle Paul writes a lot about grace. Grace is that unmerited favor of God that's bestowed upon us. Grace is God giving us everything that we don't deserve, and yet God gives it to us. And the Apostle Paul is saying that I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I don't deserve to have seen the Lord. But by God's grace, I am what I am. Well, let's move on yet and just finish out this passage. Oh, there's so much, so much in here. and It's so beautiful, so powerful. But as we move on, let's just read the last few verses. I'll make a few comments. Starting at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because he hath testified of God, we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep or passed away in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Or we are to be pitied above all men. But now, and here we have the Apostle Paul declaring with heartfelt, heartfelt conviction and much passion, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so the Apostle Paul here in these verses, he proves not only the validity of Christ's resurrection, but then the subsequent resurrection of all believers 
by exposing the silliness of their supposition. Now, supposition is an uncertain belief. It's a belief that you cannot prove. It's something that is supposed. And so he's saying here that there are some of you that believe that that there is no resurrection of the dead. Prove it. Prove that. And then he goes on to say, that is a bunch of foolishness. (laughs) That is a silly supposition. This is why. You know, there were some there, evidently at Corinth, that believed that. But Paul, he, he turns, I see him turning here to another form of persuasion. So in the first few verses, he's stating the obvious. Okay? Christ is risen from the dead. One, two, three. That's how I know. That's how I prove it to you. But then there were some that I believe were saying, eh, maybe, I'm not so sure. Or there might have been some that said, okay, I do believe that, but I still don't believe that one day everyone will be resurrected. I don't, I don't believe yet in the resurrection of the dead. You're, yeah, you're working on me on this Christ rising from the dead, but I'm not convinced yet on everyone. And the Apostle Paul says, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> the, the, if, if Christ rose from the dead, then by all means, others will too. They're one and the same. They go together. You know, we use different, different types of persuading, you know, persuading people from time to time. Sometimes we start, just like Paul did, and said, one, two, three, this is how. I prove it to you. This happened. And then if people still are kind of giving us grief, we say, look, okay, listen to me. If this didn't happen, then this would be a joke. And we say some really extreme things. And people are like, no, that could never be. Okay, maybe you have a point. I I got you now. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. And so Paul goes on to say, he says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. Then your faith is vain. And I can see him pointing. Your faith is vain. And they're like, wait a minute. But we're standing firm, right? Your faith is vain if Christ is not risen. He says, our witness is vain. We're just a bunch of liars. He goes on to say once again that your faith is vain. And in verse 17, he says, ye are still yet in your sins. Now that probably stung when he said that. You are yet in your sins. If Christ is not risen, if the dead are not raised, you are still in your sins. Now he had their attention, okay? If nothing else had them, he now has their full attention. What do you mean? Judge not. What do you mean we're still in our sins? He goes on to say, if Christ is not risen, dying is vain. Living is vain. In fact, everything is worth nothing if Christ is not risen from the dead. Now, I want you to follow Paul's logic point by point when he says, verse 17, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. And I quote, if there is no principle of resurrection, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has power over him and defeated him. If death has power over Jesus, he is not God. If Jesus is not God, He cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for before God. If my sins are not completely paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. 
Therefore, if Jesus is not risen, he is unable to save. And therefore, there is no forgiveness for sins. That's basically Paul's logic, step by step. You are yet in your sins if Christ is not risen. And now they're saying, okay, okay, I think I got it. But maybe not yet. He ends by saying, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now we read that, but what does first fruits mean anyway? It's something we say in church, right? It's something we read in 1 Corinthians 15. But the fact is, Paul was meaning for this to be the clincher. Like if they get this, game over. The deal is sealed. But if we don't understand what this means, then we don't get it. And if we don't get it, we don't get it. Okay? But here he says, Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of them that slept. What is the first fruits? And once again, I quote In the Old Testament, the offering of first fruits brought one sheaf of grain to represent and anticipate the rest of the harvest. We read about this in Leviticus 23. But they would bring one sheep, just a small portion of their harvest, and they would bring it to the priest. It was the feast of the first fruits. And then, at the feast of the first fruits, the priest would wave the sheaf, this small portion of the first fruits, before the Lord, signifying that the entire harvest belonged to the Lord. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God's assurance to us that we shall also be raised one day as part of that future harvest. But it gets more beautiful. The Feast of First Fruits was observed on the day after the Sabbath following Passover. Significantly, Jesus was the Lamb of God sacrificed on Passover. And he rose from the dead on the exact day of the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. The offering at the Feast of First Fruits was a bloodless grain offering. No atoning sacrifice was necessary because the Passover lamb had just been sacrificed. This corresponds perfectly with the resurrection of Jesus because his death ended the need for sacrifice, having provided a perfect and complete atonement. <laughs> but now is Christ risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of them that slept. What do you say? Amen. What a Savior, brother. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Dear people, we have so much to be thankful for.